It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. But what about those small business masterminds who succeed at making their money work harder? They do that by having a business bank account with QuickBooks Money which now earns 5% annual percentage yield. Making your money work as hard as you do, that's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. Is this dramatic enough? Donald Trump indicted in Atlanta over efforts to overturn his 2020 election defeat in Georgia. We go back to the Middle East. Israel saying his troops are pushing deeper into Gaza City after encircling the northern part of the Palestinian enclave. The White House. 2023, now the hottest year on record. We saw those hot record temperatures affecting cities around the world. Ukraine's counteroffensive has stalled in recent weeks, even as the country continues to come under attack from the air and on the ground. 2023 has been a year, a year of progress and a year of disruptive change for women and people of color in particular. The case is an effort by a conservative legal group in Texas to limit abortion nationwide. A fatal blow to affirmative action. The Supreme Court ruling that the affirmative action admission policies at Harvard and University of North Carolina are unconstitutional. Disney is asking its workers to return to his offices four days a week starting on March 1st. In an inter- so we wanted to take stock. How has the year fared for equality efforts across all of these topics? Bloomberg Equality reporter Kelsey Butler says there has been progress, like corporations hiring a more diverse workforce. There were 39 companies, including Meta, Microsoft, Pepsi, where they increased the number of Black workers in, like, professionals' executive categories. But as Bloomberg Businessweek senior writer Claire Suddeth puts it, equality in America is a long game, and progress can be slow. If the Supreme Court can overrule the FDA and say that they know better about a drug, that leads us down a completely different path than the one we'd been walking down as a country until now. Kelsey and Claire are here to give us a roundup of this year's Equality News. I'm Nancy Cook. Today on The Big Take, what equality in America really means in 2023 and what's ahead for 2024. So we're talking first about the equality gains made in 2023. To start, Claire, tell us about the O-Pill and why it's notable. Oh, gosh. Well, it's been over 60 years since birth control, the pill, has been available for women. But up until this year, it has always been prescription only. And so while millions and millions of women are on birth control, there's still a lot of barriers to access. You have to have a doctor. You have to have access to health care. And so there are also millions of women who aren't on it. And Opil is the very first FDA-approved over-the-counter birth control pill that you can just walk into a pharmacy and pick it up off the shelf. And where does it fit into the landscape of options that women have right now in terms of birth control? So 
If you're on birth control, you're probably not going to switch to O-pill because it's actually kind of an old pill. It's progesterone only. And most pills are a combo of progesterone and estrogen. It's very effective and it works. And the reason why they picked that one is because there's sort of fewer side effects and more people can take it. So it's safer for over-the-counter use. But it is a bit of an old pill and people tend not to pick progesterone-only pills if they have a variety to choose from. So it's really just filling the gap of people who aren't on any form of birth control. It's probably not people switching from prescription to over-the-counter. And so like how many people having over-the-counter pill like that, how many people could that help? And how widespread do you think that could end up being? I think it'll be millions of people. It's not available on the market yet. It should be early 2024. And it'll take some time for the public to become aware of it. And so usually it's several years before it kicks in. But I think among especially teenagers who maybe do not have access to birth control because they have to ask their parents if they can go to a gynecologist or something like that. And low-income women who don't have health care. We're talking in the tens of millions. Claire, was this a long time coming, having this over-the-counter birth control pill? In some ways, this has been on activist radar since the 60s. I would say in the last decade, maybe 15, 20 years, it has really picked up. This was a joint effort among reproductive rights activists and scientists to find the right pill, find a pharmaceutical company that is willing to jump through all the hurdles. Because one of the interesting things is birth control is so widespread that pharmaceutical companies aren't making a ton of money off of this. And so the hindrance in the past was less that the FDA wasn't open to this. It was that no drug company really thought it was worth their while. But HRA Pharma, which is a French pharmaceutical company, was like, yes, you know what, we will do this. They did the same thing in Britain, actually. For the most part, this was very smooth sailing, which you can't really say that about very many things related to reproductive rights these days. One of the other huge things that happened in the equality space in 2023 was the labor economist Claudia Golden won the 2023 Economic Nobel Prize. What did Golden win for and what was the biggest finding in her research, Kelsey? Yeah, so I think what is notable about this is it was multiple barriers broken here. The first time a woman had won this prize alone, but then what Claudia Golden's work actually focuses on, which is about women in the workplace and basically a lot of things that we talk about now in this return to office environment, which is the motherhood penalty as well and where the pay gap really starts to accelerate, which often is after the birth of a woman's first child. And apart from the motherhood penalty, what are some of the other findings that she's known for? She sort of studied women's labor force participation throughout history. And prior to her work, there was this sort of assumption that women, quote unquote, didn't work. And then suddenly in the 1970s, they decided that they were going to start working. And, oh, this is a brand new thing. And, oh, my gosh, all these women are working. How do we feel about working mothers, et cetera, et cetera. But what she showed was actually before the Industrial Revolution, when many people were working on farms and in a more agriculturally-based society, and as society shifted to a more factory and office-centered work model, women were left out of that. And so in some ways, from the 1970s on, we've been sort of like returning women to the workforce. But obviously, it's a completely different work environment than it was before for them. And how has her work on the gender pay gap been applied to the modern workplace? 
So I wanted to highlight something interesting that she talked about in a recent conversation with our colleague Reed Pickert after she won her prize, which is just kind of looking at the idea of both greedy jobs versus flexible jobs and how we're kind of seeing an evolution of greedy jobs that would take a lot from a person's time. You know, for example, it was a job that maybe you had to travel a lot. And we've seen kind of an evolution of that in this push-pull over work flexibility. We have flexible jobs that are becoming more productive. Think about the flexible job that you were told, well, you can work part-time, 25 hours a week. Well, that wasn't going to lead to very much of a promotion possibility. But if you can now combine it with some remote work, that will be much better. So greedy jobs becoming more flexible, flexible jobs becoming more productive. So I think it'll be really interesting to see how some of this plays out going forward when we look at how the workplace is evolving and what women's advancement looks like in that environment. One of the other big stories of the last few years is that labor data shows that big U.S. companies did hire more people of color after the Black Lives Matter protests of 2020. Bloomberg covered that data in the summer. What were the big takeaways? This is actually pretty fascinating. I want to start by saying I did not participate in this. I am highlighting my colleagues' work, but I'm happy to talk about it because I think it's pretty awesome. They analyzed employment data for the S&P 100, which covers about 9 million working Americans. And they found that of all of the jobs created in 2021, 94% went to people of color. There are some caveats to that. Most of those jobs were sort of lower or entry-level positions, but the minority hiring boom happened at all the ranks as well. So executive, managerial, et cetera. And I think it's really important because the dominant message from companies in the past has been, it's not our fault that we're so male or we're so white because this is just the labor pool that we have to pull from. It's not our fault. This is just, you know, pipeline problem, et cetera, et cetera. And as you can see, when they actually sort of put their money where their mouth is and they're given a reason to try to make a difference, they can do it. You know, this is just 2021 data. And since then, we've had sort of a pullback on DEI efforts. And so it's sort of not clear yet whether this is going to be a blip or the start of a real sort of long change. But it is good to know that you can make a pretty big difference in one year if you want to. So I think it's really interesting is there are some companies that made really big gains all across the top, the places where people get paid the most. Um, There were 39 companies, including Meta, Microsoft, Pepsi, where they increased the number of Black workers in like professionals, executive categories. And I think that's really notable because, yes, it is wonderful to hire people at the kind of entry level, but we know that we have a kind of environment where last hired first fired. So if you're just bringing in people at kind of the entry level, the lowest rung, those are people that are going to be most likely to be cut in kind of difficult economic times. And they're also not making the hiring decisions for the future either. And this data, you know, we talked about how it has a lag from 2021. When the 2022 and 2023 data come out, what will you be looking for in particular? I'll be looking at retention, honestly, because 
it's very easy to ride the wave when other companies are talking about racial equity and moving the needle on all this kind of stuff. But it's a little bit harder to kind of keep that going in the environment that we're in right now where it's not popular in any arena to do anything that has a whiff of DEI. So I'll definitely be looking at retention and also advancement to see what those executive ranks, those positions of power in companies look like. Are those getting more diverse? When we're back, from affirmative action to abortion medication, two cases that have changed the U.S. the most this year. It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Ron Kraszewski, Chairman and CEO of Stiefel. Financial advisors, if you're not growing your practice, you're losing market share. Stiefel is a growing entrepreneurial advisor-centric firm built for successful advisors like you. Imagine having the resources of the largest wirehouses and the support of the boutique shops, but none of the bureaucracy to get in the way of you serving your clients. At Stiefel, it's your business, your book, your clients. I always tell the advisors we're recruiting, I want you to come to Stiefel and double or triple your business. Most of them laugh and shake their heads, but I'm serious. Don't take it from me. Take it from Stiefel's number one finish in J.D. Power's 2023 U.S. Financial Advisor Satisfaction Study. So, there's a reason why 148 financial advisors joined Stiefel last year. Come join us and find out why Stiefel is the firm where success meets success. Visit www.choosestifel.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. So we talked a little bit before about the progress the country has made on equality issues, but I'm curious to hear more about how the country has also regressed a little bit. Kelsey, you wrote about the Supreme Court's affirmative action ruling the day it was decided. What was the expected impact of that ruling and what have we seen with universities so far six months later? The Supreme Court decision essentially banned affirmative action at the university level. So colleges are going to have to reimagine how they make admissions decisions. And that's what actually changed with that decision. But there was kind of this ripple effect that happened beyond colleges, which is now we're seeing a contribution to a chill in corporate America when it comes to DEI or anything that kind of seems affirmative action-esque. And can you tell me more what those knock-on effects have been from this ruling in corporate hiring? What have you seen? Yeah, so what we've really seen is legal challenges by some of the same activists that sued Harvard and UNC over their affirmative action policies now set their sights on companies. So conservative activist Edward Blum, who uh, was involved in the Harvard case, he has an organization that has also filed lawsuits against law firms that have fellowship programs for those from underrepresented populations. And as a result, two law firms, Morrison and Forrester and Perkins Coie, have eliminated their diversity requirements. There have been other lawsuits for similar kind of diversity programs at companies like Pfizer. And we've also seen those companies take steps to basically open up their programs to everyone in order to not seem like they're discriminating. 
So are the companies just doing business totally differently now after this ruling? Or is it just they're paring back their diversity program slightly? What does that look like? I think we're seeing kind of three modes of addressing this. And one is companies that were just kind of doing what everybody else was doing in 2020 and putting out a statement, certainly pulling back. And that's to be expected. They didn't really have an infrastructure around DEI, so it's not much to scale that back. Then we have companies that are being very forceful, that they're going to keep doing what they're doing and they're not going to change at all. And that's obviously a smaller uh, pool of companies that are deciding to kind of stick their heads up on that. And then what we have that is a larger kind of population is companies that are doing the same things that they're doing. They're just being less vocal about it. And the data kind of bears that out. There was a survey in October of professionals that work in corporate responsibility, and more than 80% said that they had changed the language they used to talk about work or cut down on external comms about their DEI efforts, but only 10% said that they had actually decreased their programs. So they're just being quieter about it. Makes my job a little harder (laughs) to get them to talk to me, but um, doing things like tweaking language on websites and really lawyer-proofing everything seems to be the route a lot of companies are taking. And what's the argument that these conservative groups that are suing the companies that they're making? And apart from sort of universities and companies, what do you see as their next target? As far as the next target, I don't think they're quite done with corporate America yet. You know, we still haven't had a very definitive answer from the Supreme Court on diversity programs like the ones that we're talking about in this kind of corporate context. So I think we'll certainly see a lot more of that going forward. The argument that's really being made is that by singling out a specific group of people, that in and of itself is discrimination. If you have a fellowship that is for Black and Latina professionals, for example, then you're leaving out the rest of the population that doesn't fit into that bucket, despite the fact that the people that are targeted by these programs, you know, have had historical disadvantages in the U.S. I want to talk a little bit next about abortion medication and how it was put at risk by a Texas court ruling. Kelsey, remind us what Mifepristone is and how long it's been around. So Mifepristone is known as the abortion pill. It's one of two medications that is commonly used in the U.S. to end pregnancy. It's been around for years, been proven to be safe and effective at ending pregnancies. What did the Fifth Circuit Court judge rule and what happened after that ruling? So right now we're in really a status quo situation. Um, That's because of an April order from the Supreme Court. So basically mifepristone, which is known as the abortion pill, is available up until about 10 weeks of pregnancy and via telemedicine. And that's obviously, you know, in the states where abortion is still legal. So the Supreme Court has decided they're going to take up a case that is going to determine how widely available mifepristone is going forward. And really, that's because there was an appeals court decision in August that essentially would roll back the clock to 2016 and the rules and restrictions that existed around mifepristone then. So... The cutoff for it was a little bit earlier, around seven weeks gestation, and it wasn't available via mail or telemedicine at that time. And the Supreme Court is going to make a decision on that before the end of the term around next June. 
And what would happen if the courts do revoke access to it? What's the potential impact? Does that mean you just can't get it? I don't think we can underplay the impact of mifepristone like no longer being available. The reason being, if you look at all the data, more than half of abortions done in the U.S. are via medication and early in pregnancy. So it is a very commonly used method of ending a pregnancy right now. And any curtailing of that would have huge ramifications, especially as we've already seen abortion access get decimated in the last two years. And can you just put that into the broader context of access to abortion now since the Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade in 2022? How does this ruling on the abortion pill fit into that? As of right now, there are 14 states where abortion is pretty much banned. There are exceptions, but so limited and narrow that it's almost to the point of them not existing. So we look at this as any attacks on mifepristone are just another part of this chipping away that we've seen for reproductive health care in the U.S. And we're already starting to see data. It's obviously very early so far, but just the impact that these abortion bans are having There was a recent study that I just wrote up, which said that as many as one in four people that wanted abortions since Roe versus Wade was overturned were not able to access them, led to an uptick in births in states with these bans. And people that were young, like in their 20s, Hispanic women were among those that were most impacted by those bans. So we're already starting to see data around this and, you know, any further erosion is just going to compound it. It's pretty bleak. I think the thing to highlight is also that this is a drug that is widely considered safe. What they're challenging is the FDA's approval of it. So it also calls into question, you know, if the Supreme Court or a court can overrule the FDA and say that they know better about a drug, that leads us down a completely different path than the one we'd been walking down as a country until now. And while most of the political arguments as it relates to medication and healthcare relate to women and reproductive rights because of how controversial abortion is, technically this would be a ruling against the FDA. And so it really weakens the FDA. And I think it makes a lot of people nervous about sort of political and judicial oversight of what should be a standalone agency. After the break, Kelsey and Claire tell us what stories they're watching for 2024. It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Ron Krzyzewski, Chairman and CEO of Stiefel. Financial advisors, if you're not growing your practice, you're losing market share. Stiefel is a growing entrepreneurial, advisor-centric firm built for successful advisors like you. Imagine having the resources of the largest wirehouses and the support of the boutique shops, but none of the bureaucracy to get in the way of you serving your clients. At Stiefel, it's your business, your book, your clients. I always tell the advisors we're recruiting, I want you to come to Steeple and double or triple your business. Most of them laugh and shake their heads, but I'm serious. Don't take it from me. Take it from Steeple's number one finish in J.D. Power's 2023 U.S. Financial Advisor Satisfaction Study. 
So there's a reason why 148 financial advisors joined Stiefel last year. Come join us and find out why Stiefel is the firm where success meets success. Visit www.choosestifel.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. So I want to talk about what we should watch for in 2024 and what's ahead for equality issues. I'm particularly interested in childcare. I know that you both have written a lot about that. Claire, briefly, what is the funding cliff that the U.S. childcare industry experienced in September? Can you tell me more about that? I'm going to roll back for a few years, but if you remember in 2020 when the pandemic started and people were pulling their children out of daycares and childcare centers because of fears that they would catch COVID, and all of these childcare centers started falling apart, essentially, and going out of business. The federal government put a lot of their money into the pandemic relief efforts, into the CARES Act specifically, I think, into propping up this industry. Because this is an industry that was failing before COVID came along, and it just gutted them. And so they gave them a bunch of money, and businesses were able to stay open. And then when families came back after the pandemic, they were struggling but open. But then the pandemic relief money ran out. And the fundamental problem is that childcare workers are so underpaid that many of them left the industry because they could get a better paying job at McDonald's, essentially. So childcare centers may be technically in business, but they literally can't hire enough workers. And the only way that they can hire them is to raise prices, but the prices are so high already that then people are leaving and it's just this like slow crumbling of an entire industry. And unfortunately, it is the backbone of our entire economy because women make up half of the economy. And what are the potential on-the-ground effects in the coming months with this funding gone? I think what you're seeing is a lot of daycares closing or limiting the number of students that they can take. You know, I think it'll be a while before we get statistical data on it, but I anecdotally have already been talking to people I talked to one woman in Indiana who had to quit her job because she called, I think, 60 daycares trying to take her 18-month-old, and they said they didn't have a spot. So she just quit. So you're going to see a lot of women leaving the workforce. You're going to see a lot of people also leaving the workforce because of the spots that are available. Their prices have risen so much that families can't afford it. And so one of the parents is going to stay home, and it's almost always the mother. And... It's just, I think it's going to get pretty bleak. And Kelsey, on this story, what are you looking for in the next year with the childcare industry and the situation? Some of the research that we've seen gives us a sense as to what the projected impact could be. Potentially 70,000 childcare programs closing, which means 3.2 million kids could be left without spots in childcare. That's potentially millions of families that are going to have their care disrupted. And what we've seen already, even since September, is that backup plans are not that easy to come by. I wrote about this in our newsletter. A person who had already spent months and months trying to find a spot for her toddler in daycare so that she could return to work after like a five-year break to be at home. And that very first week, the child care center closed for a week because it was a home daycare and the person had, you know, their own family emergency. So this person then had to go scramble and find backup care, which wasn't necessarily the easiest thing to do and ended up being more expensive than her typical care. 
So I think we're going to see a slow drip drip. You know, all those 70,000 centers didn't close on October 1st, but we're going to see some close over time, some raise prices to try to make it work, some cut down the number of kids they can take. And ultimately, we're going to see this ripple into what parents and specifically moms are able to do at work, whether that means cut their hours, change the industry that they're in or leave work altogether. That's the biggest thing I'll be watching. I'm also really curious about the battles over return to office versus work from home and how those are hurting mothers. Claire, you've written about the push by some companies to have people back in the office and how that can affect mothers. Can you talk about the moment we're in right now? Yeah. And before I start, I want to start with the caveat that like this is for a subset of our labor force. You know, this is primarily college-educated, white-collar desk workers. But among that group, as you're well aware, during the pandemic, there was this shift from jobs that had been in person five days a week, nine to five, nine to seven, let's be honest, and, you know, make those fully remote. And it stayed that way for two and a half to three years. And talking to working moms during that time, they discovered that while it is never possible to have it all, quote unquote, they could have a lot more of it than they did before. They were able to pick their kids up from school. They were able to eat dinner with their families. They were able to make the school plays and the soccer games and basically be a full-time employee and a more present parent. And so then in the push to go back into the office, their concerns have been, I would say, largely ignored when you look at surveys, like McKinsey does their annual women in the workplace survey that they do every year. And they don't focus specifically on working moms, but so many women after a certain age are mothers that in their survey, it's like 80% of women rank having the option to be remote or having flexibility in their schedule as only the second most important thing in their job after healthcare. So they need health insurance and then they need to be able to also be a mom. And yet, when you talk to employers, only 40% of employers even recognize that this is an issue for them. And so I think you're seeing an increasingly vocal push among working moms to ask for that flexibility and to retain what they already had. Like, they're not asking for something new. They're asking to keep what they had had for the past three years. And... Anecdotally, I've interviewed a lot of women who have just flat out quit their jobs. That's not possible for everyone because financial constraints, that need for healthcare, maybe they're the only breadwinner or the primary breadwinner in their family and they have to keep their job. But I have to tell you, there are an awful lot of women who are like, nope, I'm not doing this because I value my family and my children way more than commuting into the office. And I think that's a conversation that we aren't really having which I find really interesting, which is why I'm writing about it. So that's what I'm keeping an eye on. And Claire, what are going to be the key data points that you're going to look for on this story that really tells us what is happening over the next year? I'm sort of glad you asked that because one of the things in reporting on this that I have found incredibly frustrating is that working mothers as like a facet of the labor force are vastly understudied. So I've talked to so many economists who are like, you know, I can tell you how many working parents there are or maybe how many working mothers, but I can't tell you how many working mothers who went remote, who came back, who are leaving. It's a very nitty-gritty 
question that I'm asking. So I'm mostly just frustrated by the number of economists who have said, oh, that's something we should maybe study, but you know what, we haven't studied it yet. When there are surveys about American mothers, they're usually not done by the government. There's a website called Motherly that's like a media parenting organization, but they put out this massive state of motherhood report every year where they survey like tens of thousands of moms. It's like the most comprehensive study, even though it's done by just like this website. But this year, they saw an enormous uptick in the number of women identifying as stay-at-home moms. It was like 15% last year, and now it's 25% because they're leaving because of the childcare problems that we've talked about and because of this push to go back into the office. And so I'm seeing it in surveys like that, and it hasn't yet started playing out in the official like Bureau of Labor Statistics type data. And I also want to say, like, we're talking about a few percentage points here and there, but like, I think it's like 77% of mothers of elementary school age children and up work, and it's like 68% of mothers with kids under six, which is a 9% difference. But like, you know, when the unemployment rate ticks up 1%, 2%, everyone gets really upset and starts talking about fears of a recession. We're talking about a huge chunk of the labor force that we're just missing out on. You know, the idea of the return to office debates and the idea of childcare are really intertwined because in many cases, it's not that women don't want to commute to and from work. It's just, it's not feasible in the system that we have that is crumbling. So childcare centers were open far longer pre-pandemic. They've had to, in many cases, cut hours. So in a lot of instances, a mom may not be able to make it work if she doesn't have a remote position. Yeah, I think that's a good point. And also, you know, I think when you're talking about childcare, school is counts as childcare because your children are being cared for while they're being taught. But the school day ends at like three o'clock in the afternoon or two thirty sometimes. And so usually working parents have some sort of aftercare set up. And sometimes it's a flat fee, but sometimes you pay hourly. I have two small children and one is in daycare now and it's a flat fee up to a certain point and then it's hourly after that. So the longer I work, the more I pay, but my salary is still the same. And so as these prices are rising, you know, you're also going to see people make these calculations of like, well, we can afford daycare, but only to such and such time during the day, or we can only put our kid in for this many hours. Kelsey and Claire, I learned so much from both of you. Thanks so much for coming on. Thank you. Thank you so much for having us. Thanks for listening to us here at The Big Take. It's a daily podcast from Bloomberg and iHeartRadio. For more shows from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, Bloomberg CarPlay, or wherever you listen. And we'd love to hear from you. Email us with questions or comments to bigtake at bloomberg.net. This episode of The Big Take was produced by Michael Falero and Mo Barrow. Rafael Amsili is our engineer. Our original music is by Leo Sidron. I'm Nancy Cook. We'll be back tomorrow with another Big Take. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more 
at cutter economic forum.com